welcome back, pop theologians. We've missed you. Although, although I feel like it's only been a few days. <laughs> it has only been a few days. <laughs> well, as promised, um, Marcy and I, the pop culture theologians, are back with some special bonus content for you to tide you over for the rest of the year until we launch into season two. But um, just some quick introductions. I'm John. Marcy, who are you? <laughs> I'm Marcy. <laughs> You're Marcy today? Okay, good. Well, we are the Pop Culture Theologians, and you can find us online and Twitter at Pop Theologians. We're having quite a bit of fun there um, with the announcement of our season two show. So that's pretty cool. You can find me at jerickson85 on Twitter. And then we're also on Facebook with the Pop Culture Theologians. And we want to give a quick shout out to the Engaged Gays for hosting us. Um, and you can find them on all of your favorite social media channels. And Marcy, where can we find you on the Twitters? You guys can find me at I am the men who can. So I've talked a lot about this in the podcast. It's a reference to Wonder Woman. So at I am the men who can. John, what about you? Um, well, my basic handle, my basic bitch handle is J Erickson85. So <laughs> there you have it. So Marcy. Was that your, was that your aim like screen name? Um, I'm taking the fifth on that one. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> so, Marcy, what the fuck happened this week? So, so maybe this is where we establish, yes, we're talking about Harry Potter. No, this is not a podcast for kids. So, <laughs> maybe, oh, yeah. Right? We established that first. Uh, so we are a pair of foul-mouthed academics avoiding writing their dissertations. So we talk about shit that makes us passionate. Uh, we talk about politics, uh, uh, usually at the beginning of our podcast in particular, we talk about like this week's politics, and then we do break down stuff like Potter, but we're definitely not breaking it down for kids, maybe for kids at heart. So that's my advisory to anyone listening with kids. We say fuck a lot more than the average Joe. So uh, no we do have the explicit warning on the podcast. That's true. I still want to be, I still want to be sensitive to anyone who may have logged in with like little, uh, I don't know, little John and like maybe tell little John to get out of the room. So, all right. So what happened this week? Um, I'm going to start with like the funny, which actually ties into Harry Potter. Uh, Trump <laughs> appears to be really afraid of water. Um, so he refused to go, uh, to honor the lives of Americans lost in World War II in Paris. Um, there's a ton of really fabulous and what I think are historic pictures of other world leaders going, but Trump did not go. Uh, and then here in the US, he also skipped out on going to Arlington uh, on Veterans Day. Both days, both here and in Paris, were rainy. So the theory is he didn't want to get that beautiful set of hairs he has wet. Um, historically speaking, we've seen this type of shit with like the Wicked, Wis Wicked Witch of the West, right? Like, yeah. Right. And so, um, so he can't get wet. And then uh, the big critique for me here is I don't expect anything like other than this from Trump. Uh, 
he doesn't give a shit about veterans. Uh, but Democrats, as usual, dropped the ball and really didn't nail him on this. Um, so this needed, this needed to be something that we were like, I'm sorry, but you don't fly over to Paris on taxpayer dollars to do this. And then you're like, nah, bro, I don't do umbrellas. And then back in the States, do like, nah, bro, I just, I, no. Like, he has purposely catered, catered. He has purposely shot propaganda at veterans. So the fact that he can't even keep that lie up and Democrats are kind of like, well, that sucks. Like, it's, to me, it's exhausting. Like, this is a good one to have really gotten in front of. Yeah, he's a piece of shit. Yeah. 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 I mean, I like, and he also gives all of us witches a bad name by not being able to go near water. So it's like, <laughs> it's like listen here, buddy. You don't get to claim everything as yours. I know. I know. Um, the second thing is uh, Kristen Cinema declared the winner. Were you excited? Kirsten Cinema. Yeah, Kirsten Cinema is our new Arizona um, senator elect. Uh, from, uh, she is um, the first openly bisexual woman um, to be in the United States Senate, to be elected even. Um, she joins other out Senator um, Tammy Baldwin um, from my favorite state and home state of Wisconsin. And so she is such a breath of fresh air. She is a wonderful person. She truly is and, and will be, I think, a great representative for the great people of Arizona. And I'm really really excited to have canvassed a little bit for her when I was in Arizona. and. You know, she she truly is going to make some difference there. And she's the first woman to be elected from the state of Arizona. So that's huge. And the first Democrat since 1908 for like 30 plus years. Like, I think it was like 1908. <laughs> we don't do math. <laughs> yeah, we don't do math, but it's significant. And so, Kirsten, congratulations. Good luck. I can't wait to see all the great work you're going to do. Um, and also, I think she does herald in a new way of thinking about big tip, big tent democrats um specifically because you know she has voted with the president on um, certain times and you know but she still has very socially liberal views so i think there's a definite way and new molding of i think what this type of agency looks like in our elected officials so i'm really excited a little terrified but excited to see what she does no, totally. I so two things. Something I saw on Twitter that made me crack up, right, was that the this blue wave kicks in like edibles, right? It just takes a bit. But like the last week's been kind of like a great week to watch these recounts go go blue. Um, obviously, Florida and Georgia are still the shit show that they always are. But um, I liked the fact that like it was like, yeah, this is kicking in a little late, but I'll take it. And then um, we saw like a rainbow wave too, which I want to acknowledge, like a pink wave for women, a rainbow wave. Uh, so, so overall, just a great week watching it all kind of develop. And we'll wait and see what happens with Florida and Georgia. Um, <laughs> Florida's going to Florida, y'all. So this is a precursor to the 2020 election. Uh, it's, it's just awful. So uh, the last thing is, um, we talked a little bit about this in our last episode, but a big shout out of love and support to California. Uh, to both Northern and Southern, because these fires are raging. And um, no end in sight, really. It's extremely destructive. It's not actually getting the attention that something like a hurricane gets, which I hadn't really noticed until I moved back to the 
East Coast that there is a bit of an East Coast preferential to news. So this isn't like a 24 hour news cycle, but literally houses are on fire as we speak. So yeah, it's really sad. My one of my best friends, Kate, um, her dad's house burned down in Malibu and all that was left is the swing set. So, and you know, so I just, it's been, you know, it hits you really home. I remember sitting on that beautiful porch of his and looking at the beautiful ocean and it's gone. And I know they will rebuild and I know a lot of people will rebuild and I want to thank all the amazing people who have donated. Um, you can donate at the Red Cross. There's a bunch of ways if you go to the Los Angeles County website for you to get involved if you are able to. Um, but there's a lot that can be done. There's going to be a lot that needs to be rebuilt. Shout out to the Westworld um, town uh, like set piece that burned down in the fire. And that's specific to the pop culture theologians because we reviewed Westworld season two and a lot happened in that show. So in that set, so that's gone. There's a lot of pieces of history gone and it's going to take a long time to rebuild it. These fires are really real and it's very scary. Very scary. So with that, John, I think it's time we break down Fantastic Beasts. Let's break down some fantastic beasts. Maybe super cheesy. I'll see you on Monday. Monday. <laughs> All right. So, Fantastic Beasts starts off. It's a prequel to the Harry Potter series. So we start off in 1926. And we find out that Grindelwald, who we met, um, I think in, in, he's mentioned in the original series, but we really get to, to know his backstory in book seven, has been terrorizing the magical community. Um, and so everyone, the entire wizarding community is on high alert because they're kind of waiting for his, his next attack. And I remember when this came out, this was pre- not really pre, but pre the like rise of, of white nationalism that we're seeing right now. But Grindelwald is like the white nationalist of wizards, right? He, he like desperately wants wizards to, to a certain extent, uh, to flex their might. And we, we knew this about Dumbledore when he was friends with uh, Grindelwald and uh, when we find out in book seven about this. But that to a certain extent, uh, Grindelwald is the we are the superior race of wizards theology here and then he throws in that paternalistic spin at least that's what we get from Dumbledore that like wizards could take care of muggles right no matches um, but that they need to rise to the top and that they're superior and I think this is an important message for our time as we're watching nationalism and uh, white supremacy on the rise that fantasy has been telling these stories for as long as we can remember um, so Gallic Grindelwald is the villain for our time. So I'm really excited that uh, this is where we kind of start off. So, yeah, I definitely, um, when I first saw the film, I was not a big fan of it. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, faithful listeners, um, just as you are already aware, if you listen to the first season of the show and we would talk about this film, um, 
Marcy and I disagree a little bit on the on the on the sh on the film, but that's okay um, because unlike today's political climate, we can still disagree and agree at the end of the day. However, um, in my second viewing of the film, I did find a lot more of the nuance and the beauty of it. And I really, you know, as Marcy was saying when we talk about Grindelwald and his. Um, reference to I think a lot of what we're facing in our time we then meet the opposite and that really is Newt's commander and um, who is played by the amazing Eddie Redmayne and he um, when we meet him travels from London to New York City with a briefcase full of magical creatures or fantastic beasts um, so it's always funny because I automatically got a lot of like flashbacks to our customs and immigration process now. And so <laughs> the fact that he like has this box or a bag full of like, you know, crazy animals and creatures. And we find out more about, you know, his briefcase later on in the film, but you know, he's inspected by customs. Um, he's able to hide it from the muggle eyes or in America, the nomad, nomages, right? Right. Nomages. Uh, our American muggles, and we met new in Harry's textbook, Fantastic Beast and Where to Find Them. But I don't know, reading the original series, I didn't realize new would be so adorable. Exactly. Or he has like, oh, like, I really do think, and I'll break this down a little bit later about like Newt's version of like masculinity and what he offers to, I think this time in juxtaposition to Grindelwald or, you know, what we look at with Percival um, and Colin Farrell. So who, who plays Percival in the film? So um, we see Newt be welcomed into New York city. Um, and then, we flash um, to another location in the city and we see some men are inspecting a building downtown um, that has been completely torn through and destroyed. And you don't really get much context to it, um, but the Auror there, Percival Graves, who's played by Colin Farrell, um, comes by to see the damage. Um, the cops, the you know, regular cops are there um, and they really don't know what's going on, but obviously Percival does and there is an unforeseen force that all of a sudden pops up and runs underground and destroys part of the street. And I think this really segues to a big theme in the film that we see is how destruction is used as a narrative to cause chaos in our lives that we have, the safety of them to cause chaos in the normal complacency of things. But what really also destruction does to, I think, push people forward in a positive or negative way and how people deal with destruction is something that some of our main characters really grapple with throughout the film. I would say, so I think destruction, um, so we know, um, and for anyone listening, that it, the destruction's an obscurus, right? And I think that that ties together to the idea that we use our fear of destructive forces we do not understand as something that powers forward narrative, right? And so if the narrative is that wizards and magic is bad, this type of uh, Destruct, destructive force can be used to push that narrative. If the narrative is look at the power of magic, then you use it to push that forward. And so, right, we we have Newt having this like amazing kind of welcome to New York, Taylor Swift's playing in the background moment. That um, would be great. Wouldn't that be great? Um, and he comes across Mary Lou Barebone, who's played by the 
always amazing Samantha Morton, who's on Harlots. Um, I love her. I, I love her in everything that she does. Um, she's so, an Academy nominated actress, Academy yes. Award nominated actress. She's incredible. Yeah. Actually, this is a heavy hitting film when it comes to actually award winning actors. Um, but Mary Lou Barebone, she's like a fundamentalist and she is the head of the Second Salemers. And uh, the Second Salemers are an anti magic group. And this is, I, to tie it in my head, this is the equivalent of an anti queer or anti immigrant, anti woman group. That's where this kind of steps into play. And she has these three adopted children. So she has Credence, who's Ezra Miller, who is the most bomb like person to follow on social because his life is full of uh, full of magic. Actually, he's just amazing to follow. Modesty and Chastity. So that's like a '60s band, right? It's like, <laughs> like it's ridiculous. But she spent, <laughs> like she spends her whole life. Uh, spreading this hatred and fear of magical folk. And remember, no magis don't know anything about, about magical folk. So this is like, if it's spreading this urban myth that there are witches and wizards among us and they're dangerous, right? And Newt passes by her and she's trying to evangelize to him. Um, and it's, it's a powerful scene because it is actually capturing a sense of Americana that is distinctly different from the original series, right? So Second Salemers is obviously a reference to the Salem witch trials. And the Salem witch trials are something that live kind of in our collective imagination as, as Americans, right? And um, there's a sense of like wonder at like how it happens and whatnot. And so I think that Mary Lou Barebone and the Second Salemers are kind of an example of how this this kind of thing happens. And then it's the persecution, like I said, of minority groups in general. Wizards and witches are an analogy to this. Um, but as Newt is kind of trying to get away from her, a Niffler escapes from his case when it sees a shiny silver coin. Um, and I would be a Niffler, FYI. Look, I don't trust anyone who says they wouldn't be a Niffler. So a Niffler is a fantastic beast that looks a little bit like an otter mixed with a duck. Oh, it's uh, so freaking cute. It's so cute. And it shoves anything shiny into its little marsupial pouch. Um, I think this is the best get quick, like rich quick scheme in the whole world. Just get a Niffler. Let it go like free and like Tiffany's and then it comes home and it's like, boom, I'm a millionaire. <laughs> like, boom. I love it. But the Niffler jumps into a bank, um, this like humongous bank. And so Newt is uh, trying to capture his Niffler when he goes inside the bank and meets the ever lovable Jacob Kowalski. Jacob Kowalski. I love him. He's you love him? My, yeah, he's probably my favorite. Oh, yeah, he's a good guy. So he's played by Dan Fogler. Um, and Dan, unlike Joe from The Purge, is not an asshole. And although he works at a factory, um, uh, he is there. I had to give a shout out to our season one. I'm sorry. I actually uh, thought of Joe when we were, when it was like, you know, he's here for a loan and he's like a simple dude. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> um, uh, so Joe um, is there actually to apply for a loan. He is, of all things, an impassioned baker. Um, and so he's there to apply for a loan. And because of um, the little fantastic beast running away, um, Newt and um, Jacob's briefcases um, get mixed up. So Newt 
um, is trying to catch the Niffler while Jacob is meeting with a bank employee to get this loan. Um, and he uses baked goods as collateral instead of something valuable and he is denied. Um, however, um, what's really interesting here is that we see an, like an economic critique of the banking industry as well. So you have what people are actually really good at and that's baking and kind of the belief in really pushing, you know, a craft forward, um, you know, as an investment and not as something as capital. Um, but, you know, people are really falling in this narrative um, and they need something to really force it through. Um, and so he's denied, sadly. And But before Newt can grab the Niffler, um, Jacob notes um, that there's this egg hatching and Newt uses his wand to pull Jacob toward him, which is seen by Porpentina, um, who we can just call Tina Goldstein, who is played by the beautiful Catherine Watterson. She is an American witch in the film, um, but she is also um, one of my favorite actresses. So I just got to give a quick shout out to her. So She was amazing in the most recent um, alien film. She was. And so Tina has been kind of following Newt because she kind of recognizes him from outside and then in, and she doesn't really know what's going on. But the moment she sees um, Newt uses magic on Jacob to bring him forward. Um, Newt and Jacob are now wandering all over the bank. Tina's been made aware of it, and they find the Niffler in the bank vault as just as the bank employees catch them. So Newt petrifies him and gets the Niffler to drop all the things it stole. Um, literally, I cannot believe the stuff that this animal put into its pouch. It's just it so is cute. Maybe it's actually, just I adorable. I would probably let him into the Tower of London so I could have some crown jewels. I need oh, a yeah. room, man. I should be a Niffler for the next Halloween and just like, that would be the only reason I could ever wear like six tiaras. That That is true. <laughs> I mean, you've always been looking at how you can rob the Tower of London. So I think you're on. Got it. <laughs> I think you're on to something. Um, also, I think you have a short story in there of an unnamed... Um, like witch and a Niffler in like the early 1950s and a whole scandal that sets the wizarding world on fire. Just saying. Um, but so Newt prepares to um, wipe Jacob's memory because he's got the Niffler and he needs to get out of there. Um, but before he can do that, Jacob grabs his case and he hits Newt in the face before running off. So Tina, um, yeah, catches Newt and takes him with her after seeing what he's been carrying, this crazy briefcase full of magical creatures. And um, however, it's the wrong case. So now we have a total incident of like, you know, mistaken identity or mistaken objects, basically, with Jacob actually having Newt's case and Newt having Jacob's case, which we all saw was just full of bread products. Right. So we've got the old switcheroo of the suitcase going on here, which no one saw coming except everyone watching this movie. So <laughs> Tina, having seen that Newt was not careful with a nomad and like everyone saw magic, decides to take Newt to the headquarters of the Magical Congress of the United States of America, Makuza. Uh, great name. Actually, my passport cover right now is a Makuza cover, and I'm super proud of it. No one ever gets it. But um, she wants to take him to the oars, uh, particularly Graves, who was her boss, to be like, hey, like this, uh, this foreigner has been exposing muggles to magic, right? 
the Makuza president, Serafina Pickery, which um, is played by Carmen Ajogo, I think is how you pronounce her last name. Fabulous. Um, kind of lets us hair is fabulous. She's beautiful. Like, she, she's not happy to see Tina. So we kind of figure out, um, we infer that Tina was an Auror, but something happened and, like, she's no longer an Auror. She's kind of like a paper pusher. Um, so she takes him down to her older office, uh, her old office, and Graves comes in. Graves is who we met at the destruction site at the beginning of the film. And Graves takes her seriously enough, which I thought was interesting, and says, let me see what's in the suitcase. Like, let me see this fantastic beast. But that's when they actually figure out that these suitcases have been swapped and there's a ton of pastries. And huge missed opportunity. Everyone could have had a great pastry, but they don't eat anything, which is ridiculous. Uh, so... I think like, as we're, we're starting to find out, there's a different relationship with magic with American wizards and nomadges than there is with British wizards and muggles. So in, in, in Britain, um, the wizards and witches technically still need to hide their magic, but they can interact with muggles, they can marry muggles. Um, and in the U.S., it's a absolutely not, no mixing whatsoever. And that, is, that has historical precedent in the American um, story of civil rights, right, and integration. Uh, other countries integrated before we did, um, and there was a lot of critique of, like, how long it took us to, like, eliminate slavery, to integrate schools, and stuff like that. So I think that this relationship with magic is a critique of the American history uh, with people of color. Right. Um, and then progressively as the years have gone by with immigrants, with the queer community. Um, so I think that's an interesting take from JK Rowling of like us get your shit together. Cause it's not. Um, yeah. I think that's always the critique of a lot of outsiders on the United States. I mean, I remember after the 2016 election, I had to go to um, uh, Quebec or Toronto, somewhere in Canada. I can't remember. Um, somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. And um, all I heard was, what are you guys doing down there? Like, and a real critique on our system at a broad-based view of, you know, clearly someone who doesn't live here. But I always think that I do appreciate people on the outside just like looking and going like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, no, 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 for sure. So Jacob brings Newt's case to his own personal apartment and accidentally opens it setting loose a bunch of creatures, including our beloved Niffler again. Oh, the Niffler. Right. Um, and I think, like, maybe I look for symbolism in Potter because it, it brings me comfort, but, like, I love the idea of, like, there's no containing the magic in this world, right? Um, and that anything that's, like, in a closet, like, shut back, shut away, it's going to come out. Um, so we leave Jacob... Um, he's been bit by one of the animals, like not like dangerously bit, but something's up. And we leave Tina and New looking for Jacob. Um, so so it, this, to a certain extent, is one of those like, we need to like, um, like almost like a treasure hunt for these beasts with the narrative woven in. So, yeah, I definitely, right? yeah, I really think that it is like, a, a definite reference to understanding. And I think that's what Newt's character really does express through his personality and his actions. And I think you see that 
even in more so later in the film with how these beasts should not be contained. They should be treated for, they should be cared for, they serve valuable, you know, purposes to the world. And so um, in, in regards to how Americans see magic or how, you know, the magical community sees um, the non-magical community in the Americanized context, you see a lot of borders, you see a lot of walls trying to be set up and a lot of rules being in place because you feel like people cannot um, contain the excitement or I think deal with that level of reality or excitement. And I think Newt totally throws um, like a wrench in that whole system. And that's why he's such a threat because I was always really jarred by the fact that I'm like, wow, these people are like really angry. Like, like, in the, I mean, I get that like Grindelwald is like, you know, like killing a bunch of people and like blowing shit up and like, you know, doing whatever. And then we have this weird, you know, um, what do you call it? The fear that's going around. What is it called, Marcy? What do you mean? What's that thing destroying? Oh, the, the Obscurus. The Obscurus, right? And so obviously there's something to be afraid of, right? But it's like an unforeseen force. And then when you have someone like Newt and his merry band of followers, right? Um, really showing like, oh no, you, we don't need to be scared of this. We need to think of this in a different context, in a different way. You do see uh, a critique on, I think, our current climate of people are scared of this unknown force that they see destroying the country, AKA, you know, our, our current immigration debate or the war on terror or whatever you want to use. And then you have this one side of the coin that's totally perpetrating like, you know, the second Salemers vigilance, you know, we have to destroy it. We have to, you know, get it under control. And then you have the other side of people saying, no, 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 like, this is not a problem. We need to treat these people with respect. They have human rights. These things have purpose. These things have issues. And I really think at this point in the film, that's something that I'm really coming to see much more clearly. Yeah, no, for, like, definitely. And I think, obviously, like, we'll break this down a bit more when we break down the Obscurus, but, um, but no, definitely. Um, so, like I said, we've left Jacob, we've left... Tina and Newt, and then we see Mary Lou at this orphanage that she runs, right? And she's talking to children about the evils of the magical community. Like, I think this is important. <laughs> I think this is criticizing our mixing of faith and policy, right? What do you think, John? I totally agree. Also, my aunt that I no longer talk to, whose name is Mary Lou, and I think her and this Mary Lou would get along just great. Does she hate witches, too? <laughs> I have a feeling she does. Right. So I feel like she's taking advantage of, um, this is the Great Depression, right? There's tons of children on the street. She brings them in, she feeds them, and she poisons them with her hatred. Um, she takes these kids, right, to meet politicians, to advocate for this agenda of hate um where they're pretty much dismissed right um but this is just where do we see this we see this everywhere in our political system the the shaking of hands behind closed doors of the evangelical movement i'm going to add the catholic movement in there as well and policy is undeniable i mean it pretty much happened i would say like during after reagan and it's never stopped right um so of course she is mingling with the change makers and mixing in her like her hatred and ideas. Um, I think of like Westboro, right? Westboro picketing and showing up places like that's what Mary Lou does with the Second Salemers. Um, 
But here is something that, you know, John, you're going to be able to relate to this because we've done a lot of studies on queer studies and religion. Credence is not who his mom, not his mom, aunt, whose aunt thinks he is. So Credence has been secretly meeting with Graves. Mm-hmm. Right? And because Graves is convinced that Credence can help him locate this, this child with immense powers. So let's break down this child with immense powers for a second. The Obscurus is the, so the way that Newt describes an Obscurus is there are certain times where a wizard child is forced or asked or self-imposed to deny their magical abilities so they bury them deep inside. And the toxicity of burying those emotions, those powers deep inside, eventually strips them of their humanity and turns them into this negative ball of force and power. Um, my guess is Graves, seeing that Credence and Mary Lou are at the front of a, an orphanage, says probably the child's somewhere in here. Uh, the way that I read this from the first time I saw the film um, is this is so symbolic to what happens to a child when they're asked to put their queerness away. And the connection there to Mary Lou and her orphanage and her church-like following of children is what happens when adults who fear the unknown ask children to make themselves smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, there, I don't think there's a more devastatingly beautiful image than if you have to hide who you are, you eventually die and you become this like, shadow of self, right? That is, that is just bitterness and toxicity and it's a person's soul dying. And that's what the Obscurus is. It's this like power that can no longer be contained, but it's not life-giving. Um, so I think that's a beautiful image. Beautiful. I, I do too. And I definitely think, I see Credence's character in a, in a different light, obviously, because you know, I am gay and I do see this struggle. And I think that having, you know, the amazing actor Ezra, you know, playing him who's openly queer, or I can't remember if he identifies as like, he's queer, right, right. He's openly queer. And so I definitely think that we, what we have here is um, a couple of narratives, the child in the closet. So a child that can't really express their beauty and i think the beauty here is his magic um he is in a in a home in a community that represses it that demonizes it that tells him he's ugly he's wrong he's horrible um and that takes a toll on him a toll that we see taking a serious impact on the actual outside world um but i think that toll on him internally is something that is very traumatizing and something that we really need to be more consciously aware of within the broader context. And so when we look at the character of Graves, um, who's trying to just use Credence um, for power and gain and whatever else there is, um, you see a lot of that institutional abuse. The You can talk about it with the Catholic Church to social commentary to anything about an older figure using a younger child for gain, right? And then you have the opposite, and then you have Newt's character in that community um, who are not afraid of credence, who 
believe in his beauty, who see his, who see him for who he is, uh, and why the repression was and how it was. And I, that's also the way in which you see it with Tina, as we start to learn that Tina has a history with Credence and she recognized something him, him in the beginning, but um, she couldn't fully do anything about it. So I definitely think that there's something there. Well, and, and to be, um, to be clear, they don't know, like no one here, Graves, Tina, knew, knows yet that um, Credence is the Obscurus, right? That's one of the reveals at the end, but totally agree with John about like the, the power of who is your support system when you're that young and, and closeted. So closeted and, and not, because this can, this can also be for like girls who have been beaten to submission with patriarchal culture. It can, it, there's a lot of symbolism just for children not being able to be themselves right here. So, um, yeah. so Newton Tina find Jacob and he was attacked by that Merlap. So, you know, he Newt grabs the creature, shoves as many of those beasts as he can in his um, suitcase, realizing he's missed a couple. And then they go to Tina's apartment. And Tina shares this apartment with her younger sister, Queenie. Who I love. I okay. love Queenie. Side moment. I am really kind of hoping that Alison Sidal, who plays Queenie, gets to play Princess Diana in The Crown. Because I think she would be amazing at that role. Don't get my hopes up, Marcy. Uh, I'm not going to, but I'm like seriously shipping her for that. Don't break my heart. I know. Um, and so Queenie's a legitimens, which uh, means she can read minds. And Jacob, our beloved Jacob, immediately is like completely in love with her. And what's so sweet is Queenie can read his mind. And whatever he's thinking is respectful and kind and sweet because Queenie doesn't hate it. She loves it. Um, and I love this scene of them walking into Tina and Queenie's apartment because I think it's a challenge to us to see the beauty in the mundane of our own lives. So one of the beauties of the, this world that J.K. Rowling's created is that seriously, we obsess over the most mundane magical things, like, like turning on a light bulb with Lumos or fixing some glasses or, you know, setting a tent with your wand. These are not amazing feats being done by magic. They're really the small details of life, right? So when we walk into this apartment, uh, Queenie uses her wand to really beautifully slip on this beautiful 1920s dress. She uses magic to, to really beautifully create this strudel for Jacob. And there's just this sense of like, man, this is homey. And homey is exactly how I describe J.K. Rowling's writing. <laughs> like, it just feels like home, and it makes you realize that the stuff that we're drawn to is, like, the descriptions of food and kindness and family and the Weasleys, and now Queenie and Jacob. Yeah, because so, who didn't want to live in, like, that shoebox of a home? Yo, like, I was like, I would love to have dinner with you. I want to live in there. Please put my dresses on in that same way. It's just so beautiful and, and, um, and well thought out. Every detail is thought out. So they have this dinner. And then Newt and Jacob are in this like little room uh, with two twin beds and uh, they slip into the suitcase. So we figure out that the suitcase is a humongous sanctuary for animals that Newt is. It's a Mary Poppins suitcase. It's amazing. It's so cute. Um, and so. But wait, what's the charm? Because Hermione uses that in the other movies and books. Oh, I totally forgot, but you're right. It's the same charm that Hermione uses for her purse in um, Deathly Hallows. That's so right. make a make a very random object expand, right? So Newt 
gives us um, the viewer and Jacob a tour of all of his fantastic beasts. An important one to note is um, there's a thunderbird named Frank. So he looks like a ginormous bald eagle with a double set of wings. And uh, Newt says, you know, I'm, the reason I'm here is because I'm bringing him back to his um, natural habitat in Arizona. Because he says it's super, super weird. Um, so people when they watched the film had like a bit of an issue with this uh, Newt Arizona storyline, which actually connects to some of the backstory she gave on American Wizards. Um, so Frank is clearly an indigenous animal, and uh, from the story and backstory that J.K. Rowling has given us, and um, she does talk about like indigenous magic on Pottermore. And so there was some very real critique of like, like stay in your lane, like do not appropriate our, our historical wisdom for your storytelling. Um, and so I'm going to respect that. I totally understand it. Um, if someone took Columbia's indigenous mythology and turned it into some like, if some white person took Columbia's indigenous mythology and turned it into a bestseller, I'd be like, seriously? If we told our stories with our mythology, it wouldn't get anywhere. So I get it. But I will say, I love the idea that Newt doesn't believe in keeping Frank in this um, suitcase. It, he doesn't believe in captivity to enhance his sense of power over these animals. Like yeah. he's here to let Frank go free. So this is where Jacob comes across something, which is the first time we're introduced to the visual of an obscurial. So Jacob, as he's navigating through this like zoo type area, finds this like ball of like black smoke and energy that's floating and Newt's like, stop, stop, like seriously stop, um, be careful. This is an obscurious, it's an extremely dark force and energy. Um, I'm the only person who's ever been able to separate it from a child. Um, so this is, the moment for me where something clicked that I thought was huge. What John, was that? were you on Facebook at like three in the morning, like a year and a half ago when I had this like aha moment and I needed the whole world to know and no one was listening because it was two in the morning? Probably. <laughs> so in book seven, in the Deathly Hallows, we finally get a backstory for Dumbledore's sister, Ariana. And the description used to describe what happened to Ariana when we first read the books with no point of reference to an obscurial just sounds like something was wrong with her and she, she ended up hurting people and hurting herself. Um, so we find out from the Rita Skeeter book on Dumbledore and from Dumbledore's brother that Ariana was, was probably doing magic in her backyard and some kids came by made fun of her and it affected her for the rest of her life. And then we find out that in some type of fight that Grindelwald, Dumbledore were having um, with Albaforth, uh, Dumbledore's brother present, Ariana ended up causing her death and her mother's death. So when we get this in book seven, we don't have a point of reference for what this is. Now that we know what an obscurial is, my immediate observation was, that event where she got bullied, where Ariana was bullied by some muggles, ended up causing her to push her magic deep, 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 deep in. And it led to her becoming an obscurious. And while she was able to function normally, like we see Credence, in moments of severe stress, she couldn't. And so the fight between Grindelwald, um, Dumbledore, and Aberforth 
obviously was so traumatic for her that she exploded into that powerful force that an Obscurious has, killing herself and her mother. This also explains why in book six, when Harry and, and Dumbledore are attempting to get the Horcrux, Dumbledore's greatest regret is, is his sister's death and he blames himself and this makes sense. Uh, so I freaked out when I was reading and was like, I figured it out. And I think all of Twitter was ablaze like within the next two days. But I felt like this was important because it was a part of Dumbledore's narrative I didn't understand. Uh, yeah, and we're definitely going to learn more about Dumbledore as these films progress because he is a main feature. The sexy the Dumbledore film. is coming. <laughs> sexy Dumbledore is coming. I'm like blushing just thinking about your lot as Dumbledore. <laughs> So, so to move us along in this very, it's kind of a really long film. I just gotta say it. I'm just gonna put that out there. Um, <laughs> Newt and Jacob go on the town to find the Niffler trying to rob a jewelry store because that's what Nifflers do. Um, Newt chases the Niffler through the store causing a lot of damage um, and the cops arrive as Newt catches it and they're distracted when they see a line walking through the streets. And so Newt um, operates himself and Jacob out of the area and the guys continue walking through the city and see other zoo animals running loose. Um, they see another huge creature, uh, a huge erumpet, wandering around. And Nick, Newt, I'm sorry, Newt gives Jacob a helmet in preparation for catching the beast. And then he does um, something that I'm sure Eddie probably just does in general at home. Um, this really bizarre mating dance um, to lure um, the Arumpet toward him. And so the Arumpet sees Jacob and goes after him instead, but Newt manages to pull it back into the briefcase. And Tina, who um, has gone looking for the guys because they are no longer at the apartment, um, after seeing them, they weren't in their room, sees them catching the Arumpet. And what you really start to understand now is that Newt is really not your average male. You see him, he's, he comes off as very meek in many ways, but actually he's very strong and he's not afraid to be gentle and sensitive. There was a great YouTube video I watched yesterday about the masculinity of Newt Scamander. And it was incredible when they were breaking down um, how Newt identifies or you know personifies his um, masculinity in terms of the other men in the film, and Can you know, Twitter and our Facebook. I will, I will, I will definitely share it. And then so, but Newt is not afraid to be gentle and sensitive, and his real power lies in his heart, and I think to the openness around him. I think that's what a lot of people are drawn to him as well, and um, I think this is why the dance to get this character this a rumpet into the suitcase was so important because newt's not afraid to i think go the other go down the other path to get to the means that he needs to get to right right um i'm i'm obsessed with newt's masculinity it is beautiful and transgressive so um so quick movement to like a political rally for this senator shaw that mary lou had met with and tried to convince that there were witches and um, the only thing you need to know about this scene is an Obscurus comes straight through it, right? And immediately everyone's like, well, of course there's witches. And um, they start to, to move in the direction of accepting Mary Lou's proposal that magic and wizards are, and witches are around. Um, and also terrorism is always blamed on minority groups. And it's actually a really scary Except one. for the white men who are majority the cause. Exactly. Um, so this has happened. Makuza doesn't know why this has happened. So Tina 
grabs that suitcase, shuts Newt and Jacob in them after they've captured their animals, and takes the suitcase to, to Makuza. And this is this is an interesting scene because I couldn't figure out why Tina would do this because maybe she's a rule follower. I don't know, but she takes she takes Jacob and Newt to the oars um, because I think there's a part of her that's like maybe maybe Newt brought the Obscurial. And she doesn't even know that he has an Obscurial in there, but that's not the one causing the damage. Um, but Makuza seizes on the fact that there is an Obscurial, which we know he removed from a girl, it's not Credence, um, in there, and that they let Jacob know what's up with the magical world. So Grave confiscates it all and has them all arrested, including Tina. So nice job, Tina. You didn't help anyone, and now you got, you're going to get yourself killed. Um, yeah, Tina in the film like is a little bit annoying to me at times. Like I get why she there. I get the purpose of her character, but like she really does f up a lot. Yeah, well, and again, legalism from well-meaning people. Hello, Jane from The Purge. You got to work your way out of that because the system is not set to help up uh, to help anyone. So Graves then interrogates Newt about the Obscurial, which is where he shows his cards. Um, he says. You know, like, so the Obscurial has been removed from the child, so it can't be weaponized? And Newt's like, why the fuck do you want to weaponize an Obscurial? And that's when, when Newt's like, oh shit, Graves is not an Auror. He doesn't know who Graves is, what Graves is, but he knows something's wrong because no well-meaning person would want to weaponize something so dark. Um, and then Newt coming from, you know, London doesn't understand why Jacob is a threat. Jacob's been nothing but helpful to them in capturing the beasts. And so um, it's really sad. Like it's, it's, he's, he, he realizes that he's put himself in a bad position because the way that they're interpreting the Obscurious is dangerous. But then they're like, we're destroying every animal in here. And he breaks down, not yelling again to note his, his, like refusal to, to entertain any type of traditional masculine emotion, he's almost like weeping. And he just keeps saying like, not my animals. Like they haven't done anything. Like they're innocent. Like he's not even advocating for himself. He's not advocating for Tina or Jacob either really. <laughs> but like, he's like, not my animals. They're innocent. They haven't done anything. And, um, and it's devastating. Yeah, it's truly devastating. I, you know, I really feel for them in this scene a lot. It's so sad. Mm. Um, so they're brought to that room remind okay what was that tom cruise film with samantha morton where she was a precog why can't i remember minority oh minority report right so they're they're brought to what i keep calling the minority report room which is where <laughs> the way they kill you is they put you in yeah this, this oh. is uh like capital punishment. Like, can we talk about American wizards, like crime and punishment versus like the British rule? Like what the hell? Like I was really disturbed by this scene. Well, I will say the Dementors is not a good way to go, man. Getting a kiss True. of where your soul goes out, but it, and where you hear your loved one screaming is really traumatic. But then this like minority report pool you see all your loved ones lulling you into death it's like your mom saying i love you grandma's like you're my cutie and you're like yeah i'll jump into this kind of death right so it's and then there's these like weird ass nurses we're like here you go honey here you go, here you go. here's a cookie yeah it's really messed up right it's is it a mercy or a torture i don't know i i don't 
But and then you have the whole debate on capital punishment of is it supposed to be a mercy or a church or a torture? Right, right. And I would say that the wizarding world's understanding of justice and punishment and criminalization, uh, like all, like Azkaban, Dementors, this Minority Report room, I'm not sure they've got their shit figured out. Not that any. Well, it's very medieval. Like when you think about yeah, like crime and punishment, yeah. it's very medieval. Like locking you up in a prison, you know, all these types of really twisted forms of death or torment. This very medieval feeling. Agreed. Agreed. So. Um, but they managed to escape and in traditional like fantasy film, like pull out your wands, fight everyone, get the hell out of there. Queenie helps them out. Um, she and Jacob are able to like get the briefcase of them and they like, they just get out. Um, so of course this is like almost like a buddy cop comedy, uh, with some match. Um, so Credence is getting more and more unstable and, um, he, that we have a scene with him at his home where he finds this wand in Modesty's room. And then his mom comes in and sees him with the wand and she's getting ready to beat him. And then Modesty's like, no, it was my wand. Um, this reminded me of, tell me, John, if this has ever happened to you, no matter what I would be watching in my room, the only time my parents would come in was during a sex scene. Right. Always. So Credence only gets caught the second he's holding a wand in the room, uh, which is, I think is is kind of like hilarious because I think it's a bit of a sexual innuendo there, but, um, but yeah, no, she well, wants are phallic. I mean, when you think right, about it. Right. And, and he's doing something secret in his room with his wand. So, um, but um, but um, <laughs> but his fury when, um, Mary Lou's about to beat modesty and, and him causes him to black out into an obscurial force and kills Mary Lou. Uh, so goodbye, Mary Lou. And then Graves shows up in that moment and finds Credence and Modesty. Immediately is like, we need to find Modesty. Doesn't even for a second think it could be Credence. Um, and, and so that we get the sense this is where this is going, right? Um, Graves is looking for Modesty. Credence is becoming more and more and more unstable. Um, Newt. Tina and Jacob, along with the ever-beautiful Queenie, are still looking for some of these animals. Um, so, I'm going to fast-forward through this, like, animal-catching shit. Uh, I love it, but it's not what I'm here for. I'm here to pick up all the back stuff. Um, so, they're, they're looking for a demiguise. They're looking for a narlac. There's a bunch of scenes that are great and full of magical details. Go watch them. <laughs> Yeah, but, the movie's really long. I don't know if it was long. There's just a lot in there. Um, but yeah, let's, just, let's just move to the part where they have found all their animals, and they're, they're all inside the briefcase, and everyone's super impressed with the briefcase. Um, and it feels like for them, the narrative is like, oh, they caught everything done. Uh, and Queenie, the important thing in this scene is that Queenie finds a picture of a young girl named Letta Lestrange, um, who is played in this upcoming film that releases tomorrow by Zoe Kravitz. And we find out that like, uh, Letta Lestrange has like a romantic connection to Newt, but he doesn't want to talk about it. So are you assuming, same as me, that she's related to Bellatrix? Oh yeah, the Lestrange sisters. Right. I like so. My understanding from this scene is uh, Newt got his heart broken by her, and what's interesting is Queenie could read his mind, and he feels it. 
So Mike, I think he's an empath. He, like he immediately feels that she's ruffling inside his brain. And again, not angry, not aggressive. He's like, could you not do that? He's very polite. He's like, could it's you so please beautiful. not read my most deep, dark thoughts? Right. And then when she keeps going a little bit, he's like, no, seriously, please don't do that. And it's a beautiful moment that he didn't need to be angry to get that point across, right? Like, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's one of those ways against, I think, Newt, again, shows how he he's humbled, he's reserved. He Yeah, there's parts of his life that have caused him deep hurt, but unlike a lot of people of his sex, he doesn't need to react in a violent way. Right. Um, so we move into back to graves and credence with modesty um and the the powers that be finally allow graves to realize it was credence right yeah Um, and i i think there's a part of me that like i don't particularly understand why it was so hard for graves to believe that credence was the obscurious um, I don't either because everyone else seems pretty in tune to it before he, he does. But maybe right. it's because like, you know, what, like it's, I don't, whatever that old saying is, is like, you know, what's the most obvious to you is usually right before you right. get your blind to see it. Right. Um, I think probably like similar, I feel like Credence is similar to Newt, that his power and his grace is, it, it manifests differently. And Graves probably only recognizes traditional power and examples of, of power. Um, so he wouldn't see Newt or someone like Credence as a threat, right? Um, clearly he saw a little girl as a threat because she's a girl. Uh, and I think that's an interesting thing to kind of observe for a second. Um, so Credence, now that he's killed his mom, now and then Graves kind of humiliates him and is like, no one will ever accept you, like, rah, 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 like, um credence is blowing through all of new york as oh yeah he goes full on crazy oh yeah he's just like completely um he's broken and and his heart's broken and he feels betrayed and so he, he they eventually including newt tina uh queenie and jacob all of the aurors seraphina graves they're all in the subway trying to capture him um and the sweetness and like with which Tina and Newt reach out to him. They're like, it'll be okay. We're here. Newt's like, I've helped someone like you before. Um, But then like Graves is obviously like egging him on and like hoping to harness that power. Um, And it causes, it causes credence to implode. And we see like a raining down of like these ashes. So the stress of it all, the sadness, the brokenheartedness, effectively kills Credence. That we know of, my guess is he's in movie two, which someone's yeah. gonna explain to me how that happened because he's dead at the end of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that you really see this larger sadness go about with how Credence, you know, is, I mean, it's almost like he kills himself, you know, it's like he almost completes suicide, and... I thought of it as a suicide, I thought of it as... I did too. So, too much pain having to have hit himself, um, hurt people around him, 
um, it was too much. And even though he probably wanted to trust Tina and Newt, he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, I don't, I really, yeah, he really couldn't. So, um, but Marcy, during this whole time with Credence and after everything that happens with him, um, what do we come to find out about Graves? The most annoying reveal of all times. So we find out that they start to suspect something's wrong with Graves. They do a Revelio charm on him. And it turns out he's Grindelwald. Um, the sucky ass part of this is this, this um, Colin Farrell transforms into Johnny motherfucking Depp. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been so disappointed. <laughs> I think Colin Farrell was amazing as Grindelwald. And I don't think you needed to switch out the actor, particularly not for a wife-beating actor. Um, this is something that I'm going to struggle with as we go forward. Um, I just don't think it was necessary. I think every performance Johnny Depp gives is the exact same performance. Um, just without a pirate hat. Right. But he'll always sound like a drunk uncle. But it's Grindelwald. So Grindelwald was there, and he's promptly arrested. Uh, I'm sorry, Makuza, you had Grindelwald working for you and you didn't figure it out? Like, I'm not sure they know anything that's happening. That's just like literally like with the Trump presidency. It's like there is a Russian agent in the White House and no one can figure it out. <laughs> right. Like, that's literally what it's saying to me. It's like, that's how stupid Americans are sometimes. It's like, you, like, we are so blind to the power we want to achieve that we cannot understand or see corruption within our own ranks. Oh, yeah. But what we should take from this final scene um, of the major story, we have a couple things in the end, is Newt is, is the type of person who sees redemption in those that are hurting too much to see it in themselves. Um, and I would think that this is connected to his ability to, to aid something as simple as a bird with a broken wing to a human whose soul is devouring itself. And that is beautiful. And he doesn't give up. And he doesn't think anyone, including an Obscurious, which the entire magical world's like, you can't fix it. He thinks you can fix it. And, and the way you fix it, I'm going to get corny for a second, is self-confidence and love. And like, that's corny, but it's not. Like, if you look at the... The moments where I have had like deep, deep set depression, it's very difficult to feel anything. But the things you sometimes feel are the tentacles of the people around you who are like, I love you. I believe in you. I love you. I don't give a shit if you don't love yourself. I love you. I believe in you. And then they're the ones who are like, keep going. You can do it. Like that is what gets us as humans from point A to point B. And like, if, even if the point A is as dark as, as Credence, there is a point B if we all commit to it. And I think that's gorgeous, right? And, and you just don't let fear overcome your existence. Like, not, what is that stupid? My dad always quoted this. There's nothing to fear but fear itself, yeah. right? That's what this is. Like, the reason all of this happened is because fear overtook all of them. And, and really served a purpose and they really have to make up for it now. So we see, I think, the beauty of Newt understanding the larger implications and I think also putting to use these magical creatures that everyone was really afraid of throughout the whole film and showing why they are important and why they need to do something um, that has a greater good. Um, and that's where Newt uses Frank um, to take this potion to the sky so it can rain over all of New York and the nomages nearby um, to obliviate their memories from realizing what happened. Because when Credence went full on 
like you know rampage (laughs) like when credence went credence like he went full-on like there's no way that like you're not going to know about that and you know one of the major concerns of you know the american you know magical community was about nomages truly finding out and then having to deal with it so they definitely know now and so frank kicks to the sky creates a thunderstorm a rainstorm that you know will make everyone forget while all the um you know aurors go around and fix all the buildings and we're left with a really tearful scene with jacob having to realize that there are no exceptions and the magical community although he served a purpose in helping defeat credence and let them capture grindelwald um jacob's gotta forget too and it's a really touching scene where jacob doesn't want to forget but he does and um you know he says goodbye to newt tina and queenie queenie especially because he and queenie have developed this really personable relationship almost a romantic relationship and um we're totally shipping queenie and Jacob. we're totally shipping it and it's something that we're we're gonna see and Jacob steps into the rain and Queenie steps in with her with her wand to create an umbrella and she kisses him and when he opens his eyes, they're gone. It's so sad. And I think, um, I think like there's this sense again, the critique of like what our world would look like without diversity of existence, right? Um, they're not gaining anything by getting rid of Jacob and obliviating him. They're losing something. Um, and that makes me think of like the stupid debate about the wall, right? Like what the, even in fantasy, we see, we see this a lot in Game of Thrones too, like the segregation, the separating, instead of coming together, like there's just this innate human need to separate an other. Um, but here we get a, a good visual of like, it doesn't really serve anyone. Um, so fast forward and Jacob is still at his old factory job because obviously he didn't get the loan for this bakery. Um, but then new kind of without being recognized, because Jacob doesn't remember him, drops off a briefcase full of the um, Akami eggshells, which we found out when the Akami um, initially hatched in the bank in that first scene, their shells are like straight up pure silver. So he pretty much drops off a fortune for Jacob. And like Jacob's able to open his bakery because he was able to use those shells as collateral. Um, and then. Um, Newt is obviously going back to London and him and Tina have like a really cute exchange at the ship terminal. Um, they're both socially awkward and I don't think there's anything cuter than socially awkward love. So like, he's like, yeah, I'll send you my book, Fantastic Beast. Uh, and then she's like, you know, I could come see you so you could sign it for me. And it's like a cute exchange. So we know we'll see them in the next film. I love Tina and Newt in this scene. There's something really innocent about Tina. That's and a like- good way to put it. Yeah. There's something really innocent about her love for people. I mean, obviously she loves her sister um, and what she does, um, but her love for Newt is really pure. So that's why when we see the, you know, references to Letta Lestrange or anyone else and she kind of takes note because she's very shy too. So she doesn't, she never thinks she's going to be the prom queen. She never thinks she's going to be the girl that gets the guy. And here I think she's starting to realize that maybe Newt shares feelings for her as well, but she's not going to act on it. And it's a really beautiful scene at the end of the film that I am, I think, mostly going into the next film, ready to see certain relationships develop more. 
Right. I'm, I'm looking forward to the film closes with Jacob and his bakery and all of his little pastries are shaped like the fantastic beast, which lets us know the oblivion didn't work as well as we thought it did. Cause he still remembers some stuff. And, um, there's like a Niffler, uh, piece of cake. It's super cute. And Queenie comes into the store and when Jacob sees her, there's just this smile on his face and it's like, it's in there. Like it's in there and it's beautiful and like love transcends our, our ability to try to prevent it. So that's the film. There's a lot to it. We're, we rushed through it, but we wanted to kind of break this down before the new movie came out. Um, John, do you still feel like, what do you feel the strengths are and what are your issues still before we, we close out? I think, like, with any film, like, within this nature specifically, um, there's the main universe, so there's obviously the Harry Potter films, and it's really hard to create successful spinoffs, but it's a moneymaker, so that's why things are done, so there's the capitalistic critique on it, but then there is the originalist critique on it, and I really am, I think, like, with you, Marcy, I'm a, I'm a strict Potter nerd when it comes to certain facts, so when certain embellishments are taken that I'm like, woo! are you just doing that and i and jk rowling this is a critique that she gets a lot that she's only doing certain things or saying certain things because she never really had a, an answer for how to make that work so she's doing it now um to do it um and make it make sense i i have a problem with that i i have a problem with i think overall i think the first idea of the film was like let's have this fun movie where uh characters running around catching all these beasts and i think three-fourths of the way through the film they were like oh we have a trilogy here we can totally make this something that it's not really originally supposed to be and i think that that's where one of my major complaints with the films comes in i'm like i feel like they're making it into like this next you know random trilogy of harry potter films setting up like almost like the prequels with the star wars universe like to to make those films segue in more um and there's more of a streamlined connection because of the technology that's available versus when the films like star wars were filmed before and when the prequels were done so i think the quality is better but i wish that they would have gone into this film i think with that mindset from the beginning like this is a larger story we're making it a larger story and here's how we're gonna do it i think the first film was very kidsy when the second film and i think the first film also is really adult like the stuff with Credence, the stuff with Graves, the stuff with Newt. It's a very adult film, but a lot of young kids are going to go see it because they want to see all these magical creatures. That's actually not the film they're being sold. So that's one of my main problems with it. But at the end of the day, the acting is really good. Um, Tina is probably one of is probably my favorite character. Um, and Newt's like a close second. And I'm definitely shipping them hard. Queenie won me over really hard in the first time seeing it and Jacob won me over in the second time. So I'm definitely loving the ways in which these characters are running together. And I think um, I'm really hopeful for the second film. It's gotten some mixed reviews, um, kind of the same thing that a lot of what JK Rowling is known for. She shoves so much into a small box of time. Um, and even though it's directed by David Yates, who films, who helms so many of the other films, um, you know, and he he's masterfully known for being able to deal with that piece of J.K. Rowling's like writing side. Um, 
I'm worried that we need to work on simplicity here. We need to really get down to the nuts and bolts of what this is. And I think that's why the last two films, or the last three films for that matter, in the Harry Potter universe were my favorite. Because it's really like, here's the mission, here's how we're going to do it, and here's how we get there. These films are very convoluted, where we're still like dealing with like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of pages that we might not need all that for. Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> um, that's how I feel. <laughs> so I will say that the first three Harry Potter um, books and first two Harry Potter books and films of the original series felt really kidsy, but they were prepping us for the heavy hitters later on. But that overarchingly, I'm going to say that similar to the original series, like the Harry Potter series is an analogy to the rise of Nazis and their power. And J.K. Rowling has said that. I think here, even in this first one, even if the, the nod to Fantastic Beasts feels childish, nothing about the film is childish. And I'm not sure a lot of people go into a Harry Potter film in that universe expecting anything other than the deep allegory and fantasy. Um, so while I understand the want to kind of, like, I mean, we just did it. We fast forwarded through the catching animals part because that's not what I'm here for. Um, and I think that's your critique, John, which is if I'm not here for it, why are we doing it? Um, but I think maybe that sets us up um, to continue on in this prequel, which is really, my understanding is it's leading us up to the fight between Dumbledore and Grindelwald that we hear about in book seven. Which I am here for. Like, that's why yeah. I definitely yeah. have a lot of hope. And my and even though the reviewers are mixed for the second film, they're like, no, she really gets into it right away into these stories without a lot of backstory. I'm like, I'm good with that. Like I've read all, I'm like you might like we've read all the stuff. Like we can talk about the eye color of characters, you know, like, so like we're ready for that. Like, so that's not a critique that pushes me away. That's a critique that draws me in. So that's why I'm really. No, I, I, I will give you, I will give you that we fast forwarded through the stuff that felt superfluous. I will say that I've reread the Harry Potter books a bajillion times, one and two, not as much. And that's because while I understand they're foundational, um, the story, once it picks up, it picks up and I'm not really here for the adventure story. Um, looking back, there's a lot in those first two books. And I think we'll notice that there's a lot in Fantastic Beasts we didn't pick up as we get the narrative going on. Um, but that's why you'll have to tune in to, to us next week, breaking down the crimes of Grindelwald. So, so Marcy, what's next? Like, let's give a little preview of, so what this is and what's next for sure. our amazing listeners. So, um, we are starting season two in January and we will be breaking down week by week um, the, the show, A Discovery of Witches. And we're extremely excited. It actually connects to our obsession with wizards and witches um, and fantasy narrative. But up until January, we're going to be doing kind of these special one-offs. Um, so we're breaking down Fantastic Beasts this week and next week we'll be breaking down The Crimes of Grindelwald. After that, we're doing a special series on the four Hunger Games films. Um, we've talked a lot about the Hunger Games, both in our breaking down of Westworld and in our breaking down of The Purge. Um, so we're excited to kind of break down the world of the Hunger Games as we try to make it through this crazy Hunger Games that is 2018. Um, so there's a lot to expect coming up from the pop culture theologians. We're going to be breaking down a ton of stuff. Um, but our season two does officially kick off in January, and you'll be seeing these fun fandom um, one-offs until the end of the year. I think that's a great job, Marcy. Thank you. We'll see everyone next week. We're very excited.
we are excited. Make sure you're subscribed on iTunes and SoundCloud. You follow us on the Twitters and the Facebooks. Um, and we definitely cannot wait to bring a little bit more magic into your lives. Perfect. All right, everyone. Have a magical week. Bye.